From the hills of central New York in the heart of the Finger Lakes, this is Frankly Speaking. I'm your host, Frank Rossi. My guest on this episode is Cornell University alum and current president of the American Society of Golf Course Architects, Jason Straka, a principal at Fry Straka Golf Design. Jason's work is focused on an environmentally sensitive approach to course design that was born from a love of the outdoors and how golf provided that outlet for exploring the natural world. Jason has designed some desert golf courses that at this time of year, especially in the Southwest U.S., with overseeded turf growing under cloudy, wet conditions are ripe for disease, slow growing, and are less traffic tolerant. Civitas Turf Defense from Intelligro has been shown to provide effective protection against many foliar pathogens, and it sustains leaves longer on the plant, and that maintains overall plant density that increases traffic stress. Learn more about Civitas Turf Defense, available from a variety of distributors throughout the U.S. and Canada, in pre-mixed and ready-to-mix formulations, or visit CivitasTurfDefense.com. Jason, thanks so much for taking the time to join me. Being Cornell guys, right? Uh, we have that's this right. shared experience, and um, you know that's an easy place for me to go. But the other thing that you and I share, me being a city kid, you being an Ohio kid, this land and this game was our connection to the outdoors, uh, the connection to the natural world. You grew up in maybe a more rural area. I grew up in in, a, in the city, in New York City. So for me, it was getting out to the grass and getting on the grass. Tell me a little bit about, you didn't come from a farming family. What drew you to the outdoors? I know you did some camping and some canoeing, but how did that get its way to golf? Was it just an easy way to express it? Partly, Frank, even though I didn't grow up on the farm, it was a rural community, at least you know, when I was living there. Uh, I had uh, a wonderful experience that I had three large farm ponds that were really my backyard. And, I mean, I spent days upon days uh, just walking back and going fishing with my family and friends. We had a huge yard, and uh, I got introduced to the game by my father and some other family members. And then I would love to be doing anything, anything in the yard, anything in the woods. Part of that was is that I would take old flower pots and go make a golf course throughout my yard, only hit the house a few times. <laughs> I won't tell my folks that, I guess now I will, but uh, create a little golf course around the yard. And then, you know, my buddies would come over and then we'd play golf and then go fishing. And of course, this is all before cell phones and all the rest of it. And so it was just a wonderful way to grow up as a kid. So it seemed to me you had, like my son had, an inclination to want to be an architect, maybe a building architect. My, my son is on that path right now at Virginia Tech. And, you know, we did a lot of Legos and we built rockets as a kid. He was into building rockets and we would use the plans and build the stuff. Was there that part of your brain that liked building stuff other than the flower pot? <laughs> you know, there was. And of course, you know, everybody knows about building architecture, but it really wasn't until I learned about Cornell and their program, now Department of Landscape Architecture, and really thought about uh, design, you know, not building oriented, meaning just outdoors and how spaces get organized and how you lead people through those spaces and how it just affects everyday life. And then once I start really thinking about it, I'm like, wow, you know, this is really cool because this is all outdoor oriented and getting people outside and how they work in the community and whether it's rural or whether it's city and urban planning. But I could really marry my love of being outdoors and all the things that I so much enjoy about it 
with a design component to it. And landscape architecture became that perfect profession for me. And now I want to drill in a little bit, right? Because you were here at Cornell at a really interesting time towards the end of our friend and colleague Norm Hummel's career here at Cornell. He only had a short period of time uh, after he did the sabbatic where he helped rewrite the specs and brought uh, performance testing to the laboratory environment. You know, you were working with him back in those days. That was an interesting sideline to just being a landscape architect. What drew you there? And, you know, Norm's a pal. It must have been just great working with him back then. It was and became a close friend. Frank, you know, was interesting because in landscape architecture, well, really anything at Cornell, you know, there's always the motto that you can find any study, any profession. And so, I mean, it really took that to heart. And it was really cool because in landscape architecture, even though that was my major, we had the freedom to go out and take other classes. And so, I mean, everything that I did, of course, beyond landscape architecture was focused around golf. And so I took surveying and agronomy and turf grass management, irrigation design and ag engineering classes. And so I started to meet different people. And of course, in the agronomy side of things, I met Norm. And Norm at that time had just written a class with Dr. Mike Herdson on greens construction and design. And so their very first class was for New York State Turfgrass Association. It was a nice to class. It was up in Oak Hill and Rochester. And Norm, knowing my passion for golf architecture and what I wanted to do, he said, we're going on a field trip. And I said, well, what about my classes I'm going to miss? And he said, don't worry about that. I'll take care of that. So he drug me up to Oak Hill and introduced me to Mike Herdson. So this is how fate, I guess, works and divine intervention in my part. <laughs> and Norm introduced me to Mike and Mike said, you know, these are all the things that I would recommend that you do. if You really want to become a golf course architect. And then I stayed in touch with Mike and I said, hey, Mike, you know, it's six months later, I did all the things that you suggested that I do. And then he gave me another list and then Another list, of course, Mike being oriented towards the agronomy and turf grass side too, Norm was then just a major intricate component of my education going forward. And so did research, obviously, with Norm. And when I stayed at Cornell and I got my master's degree, then he was ahead of my committee and became a trusted and close friend. As a matter of fact, I ended up being his last graduate student. And the joke between the two of us was that I told him, I, I go, you've reached the absolute pinnacle of students. And I said, so now you can officially retire, of course. And then he would laugh and he would go, really? He goes, you just ruined the whole thing for me. And that's the reason I left. <laughs> so. That's perfect. That's, of course, perfect. And, you know, Norm went on not long after that to leave and start the lab, which, of course, I'm forever grateful for, which then opened up the slot for me to get back here, which was a real treat for me. Maybe not so much for my colleagues in New York, but it certainly <laughs> has been a treat working here. So, you know, we have these mentors. We have these twists of fate, if you will, that occur. And so now, you know, you're with Mike Herdson. You're sort of a student and a creative force in that firm over time. Then you come across Widow's Walk, right? <laughs> So can you tell me how Widow's Walk came into the herds and palette and how you got yourself involved in that? Did it tie in what you'd learned from Norm on building all those greens out of different mixes? Or was it just a harebrained idea because it was an environmental project? Well, so interesting because when I was going through my master's program and still staying in touch with Mike, obviously, and then Norm being the head of my committee. But when we pieced my committee together, I was not a normal student in that regard. I mean, 
the people that came onto my graduate committee came from natural resources. I had Dr. Barbara Bedford, you know, who other than maybe Bill Mitch is really the most renowned wetland scientist in the country. And so I'd taken wetland classes because I knew from a permitting standpoint, you know, or recreating the wetlands or protecting the wetlands, that it was critically important for a golf course architect to understand how they function and their interact and to deal with permit agencies, all of that. So she joined my committee. And so I had all these different people on my committee, but my thesis, I really wanted to focus on an environmental demonstration project. And it just so happened that Mike was coming through town again to meet with Norm, and he came through Ithaca, and they were talking about doing some changes to their class and structuring it and where they were going to take it next. And I sat down in one of the buildings at Cornell, and I said, you know, hey, Mike, I said, this is what I'm really interested in doing my thesis on. And again, it's sort of that divine intervention. And he said, well, as fate has it, we are getting ready to start this project called Widow's Walk. And he said, it is my intent to make it the first environmental demonstration golf course designed and built in the United States or North America, for that matter. And he said, it's a municipal project. He says it was pretty contentious because it's right on the coast, just on the South Shore of Boston. But I want to take it to where we just go from day one and we invite any and every environmental committee organization from the Sierra Club on down to come and to participate in this project. And he says part of it is protecting the natural environment. Part of it is taking land that needs to be reclaimed and enhanced because it was a mining operation. And he said, you know, are you interested in making that your master's thesis? And I said, am I ever? And so that's really how that all came about. Growing a new golf course features or entire courses requires important attention to turf grass nutrition. And when it comes to supplying those nutrients, you want simple, no-nonsense solutions. And that's where the Plant Food Company comes in. The professionals at the Plant Food Company strive to provide the latest technology at affordable prices and backs them with their commitment to servicing the industry and golf course superintendents. They've got the research to back up their claims and products for all your nutrient management needs. Learn more at plantfoodcompany.com. Your golf course superintendent at Widow's Walk, picking up where we left off there, Jeff Carlson. I had a long period of time where I worked with Jeff at the Vineyard Golf Club. He's recently completely retired from there. I think he's still trying to cut straight lines on the fairways, but we're working (laughs) with him on that. Did you have any interaction with him with Widow's Walk? And if not, when was your first real meaningful interaction with a superintendent building something? Well, I did have a lot of interaction with Jeff. He became a good friend all through that. And then, of course, when I went to actually work for the company, then research and all of the different pieces and parts to that project were still ongoing. So I went from student to helping my colleagues in the company. And then, of course, seeing it all the way through opening and then even in the research beyond. But then even the people that were involved, even from the periphery and environmental aspect, you know, people like Dan Brezhnehan or Stuart Cohen, mm-hmm. who worked for the US EPA for quite a long time, who are very respected names in our industry now mm-hmm. from the environmental side of things. Mm-hmm. Those were my first interactions with all of them, and you know they became trusted resources all throughout my professional career and still are. So I still stay in touch with all of them. You know, like I said, I think Jeff's still trying to mow straight lines right now. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it's funny, and then how just fate has it, I've had a lot of even going back to my high school days, 
friends who became superintendents that are living okay. in that area and have become good friends with Jeff and Dan and Stuart now as well. All right, good. This makes a perfect transition for me, Jason. You know, a lot of our listeners are golf course superintendents, turf grass managers, assistant superintendents, things like that, even some sports field managers. But at some point in somebody's career in this line of work, they're going to build something. And at some point, a lot of them get the pleasure of working with guys like you with some sort of appreciation for what they're doing. I won't use Jim Wagner's name disparagingly, but I know hopefully he listens to this. You know, he's on this program said, yeah, I don't care what they say. We got to do what we got to do and they'll figure out how to manage it. They're really good at it. So uh, as opposed to the Wagner point of view here, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about sort of the nature of the mindset that you like when you're working with a superintendent. What approach do you take and what have been some of the most successful approaches you see them take on a project? First off, I go back to my very early stage in the profession because I started off as a greenskeeper, not because I wanted to be a greenskeeper. Frankly, I think they've had a harder job than I do, but I also fully understood that whatever I did as an architect was going to have to be maintained and maintained well after the fact with different budgets, different staffs, different expertise. And so for three years, I did that. And I even laugh to this day because one summer we ended up having the superintendent let go by the owner. And he turned to myself and one of my other younger colleagues, a couple of years of college under our belt in turf grass management. And I said, well, you know, who are you going to hire? And he goes, nobody for this year. He goes, you and Chris are going to do it. And I looked at him with these huge eyes and I went, excuse me. And he's like, yeah, you guys are going to do it. And I wouldn't recommend that to anybody, but I will say this is that two things came out of it. One is that I had an even greater appreciation for what these guys and ladies go through. But second, it was baptism by fire. And it was probably the greatest learning experience of my life. And so I don't know that that golf course was exceptionally well-maintained that year, but, you know, I mean, again, it's, you learn. So, you know, there's something to be said. The little bit of time I had where the golf course was my responsibility and where it was my ass on the line, there's a reckoning that comes with that, that you deal with in your decisions, right? The things that you make. Yep. And whether it turns out good or not, you know, you have that experience. So it sounds like that's really informed your approach to working with superintendents, empathetic and sympathetic to the toils that you create for them. No question. You know, and if there was ever any word of advice, whether it's from my colleagues or superintendents, I would say that whatever project you're getting ready to start working on, make sure that up front you hash out as much as you can possibly do. I mean, things change. Our jobs is certainly is artwork as well. But you really want to understand and have a common vision for that facility and that golf course. And if you can determine that and set that and make sure that everybody that's from the design, the construction, and the maintenance crew are all working towards that common vision, you can get over any differences that you can have. You can rally around one another, support one another, because everybody's under a pressure cooker and there's a product to deliver at the end of it and there's certain expectations. But again, it's my word of advice. Have that discussion up front and everybody work towards that common goal. Well, I would be remiss, particularly recently, particularly that I know Scott Bordner pretty well from his time at Chicago Golf Club. If I didn't ask you a little bit about the Union League, that this seems to be a really dramatic project on a really interesting piece of land that probably challenged all your skills 
I'm going to eventually ask you a little bit about the water and the earth moving and everything involved there. But let's start out with a real pro like Bordner, right? Scott sort of knows what he's doing. That's got to increase your capacity when you're thinking about designing a property like that, huh? It certainly does. Scott and his team you know, bring to the table is that we don't really have to worry as much about common day-to-day maintenance things. And he's so well organized that we can start to look out not only six weeks, but six months and even six years into the future. So you know what he's able to accomplish there and putting his team together. And again, it takes a team and he's excellent at doing that. So yes, I mean, he can grow as good a grass as anybody that's out there. But what I'm even more impressed with is that team. He's got had Howie and Andrew Dooley and other guys at the other facilities. And then from the interns on down, they're getting ready to build a new maintenance facility, new dormitory so that people can stay there and intern there. They're creating what's called Union League University. So that's educating the new kids that are coming in and giving them opportunities. But a facility like that are incredible. That's where I really have my respect for Scott. Well, listen, I really appreciate you saying that. I'm sure he appreciates it. And the folks down there appreciate it as well. I'm interested in talking a little bit uh, about your career now and how was Mike and Dana, and then it evolved to now you and Dana. How have you managed that transition? One of the things I find tricky sometimes is the creativity and the mindset of creativity, whether it's a rock band or it's artists. Anytime you get creative people together, there's always going to be something. Right. I think Jim and Gil that I work closely with and probably Corin Crenshaw, they divvy stuff up effectively, probably amongst them. And then they can work together in certain spaces. Can you define a little bit what those working relationships have been like in the transition to you now being a principal? Yeah, you know, with Mike and with Dana early on, that was one of the things that Mike and just his management style was that he gave everybody a lot of autonomy, (laughs) probably more than he should have maybe even at certain times. But he let everybody grow he was such a good manager of people as well. And then he wasn't afraid to let people make certain mistakes or try something and then do it over again. And that wasn't any detriment to the client. That was all just internal company-wise. So long as we got our work done on time, he would give us the freedom to design, look at it, say, yeah, that looks great, or maybe not, and keep trying. With Dana, I didn't know Dana as well as Mike, obviously, but Dana, with his incredible career working for Tom Fazio, is truly an in-the-field artisan. He learned his craft from Tom and Andy Banfield in particular and Kevin Sutherland. Those are the guys, I mean, if you truly delve into some of Tom's high-end projects, those are the guys that were the boots on the ground. And, you know, I had some artistic ability, especially just coming out of Cornell with the design side of things, but it's a whole different thing that when you start playing in the dirt, as you well (laughs) know, working with Gil. And so the very first thing that I had asked to do was really to travel with Dana. So the first two or three years, yes, I mean, I had the responsibility to the parent company and to Mike and to do planning work and engineering and environmental things. But he also let me travel with Dana quite a lot. So I spent a lot of time in the field learning the artistic side of it. And Dana is, uh, especially with larger earth-moving projects, is a genius in the shaping of it and incredibly creative. And so while I'll say that I'm very good at that, I still rely, you know, on people who are even smarter and more creative than me. And Dana is definitely one of those gentlemen. Nothing makes course design better than premier conditioning. And nothing is better than a firm golf course. 
Dry Jack Sand Injection Services increases infiltration and allows for coarse sand particle injection that will lead to putting surface firmness by top dressing, aerating, and amending in one pass. Dry Jack Services helps make greens firm. Contact your local Dry Jack service representative or visit dryjack.com. Since we brought up the creativity, uh, I also think about how you mature uh, as a creative person. I know my science is different now 30 years on than it was 30 years ago when I got right out of school. And I often think, you know, what would I say to myself back when I was starting or looking at the work I did and how would I criticize it or how would I improve it? And I'm wondering, particularly when you guys build things and you got to stare at them for 20, 30, 40 years, you know, when you look back at some of your early work now that you really had your hand on, what's changed for you over time with the way you look at it and do it and improve it maybe from what you've learned from Dana or other folks? Frank, I think two things, you know, one of which is that experience, there's really no replacement for experience. And it's not just being able to continuously work on projects and gain that experience, but it's also that we take an enormous amount of time and travel and look at other people's work. So, you know, I've gone and spent time playing and working and looking at Bill and Ben's work or Gil's work or Tom Doak's work or Maura Fazio's work and anybody and everybody because there's always something to be learned. And we do that. We insist when we start new projects, we'll take our the shapers and the construction managers and we'll take them on a little road trip or even clients and say, listen, you know, let's go out and, you know, this is your style golf course is probably most akin to, and we'll pick out three or four of them. And then we'll go and talk about how those courses got designed, built, maintained, what's been successful about them, what's not been successful about them. You know, one of the greatest people that I've come to lean on is Bob Farron. And, you know, I can't even tell you how many trips I've made to Pinehurst bringing clients and prospective clients there. And that guy won a Morley Award this year for GCSAA. Big shout out to him. He is a rock star in our industry with helping people out. No doubt. And But that's what's so cool about our industry, too. I mean, there's a lot of people that are willing to do that, but he goes above and beyond. The second thing is, as you get older, you are willing to take more chances. And I think that that's something, you know, that when you're a little younger, you're afraid to make mistakes. When you're older, you're more confident. You know how to do something. And if it doesn't quite work out right, you know how to change it to get it to where it's right. And so you just become more comfortable in your own skin and become a lot more confident and able to venture out and do more things and try more things. Well, if we're going to talk about venturing out and you keep referring to our industry, the fascinating thing about you, and I'm wondering if you're the only one this has ever happened to, you are the president of the OTF and now you're the president of the American Golf Course Architects. That's got to be the first time that's ever happened. I think so. As a matter of fact, I think I might have been the first and only so far architect who's been president of OTF. But yes, that is definitely a first between the two of them, no question. Okay, so then let's probe it. Why decide to lead a turf foundation when you're a golf course architect? It wasn't necessarily obvious. Of course, we love it. I like it because it builds that bridge between these two professions that are so intimately linked. But why? What made you think that was a good idea to do? 
Moving back to Ohio, I always pride myself on trying to stay at that cutting edge of technology and certainly part of my mentor with Mike Herdson. So, I mean, everything that we did, I mean, we used to pass around articles about turf management or environmental research or whatever it may be. But the great thing about living in Columbus, just like this great thing about living in Ithaca, was is that you've got this turf research center, an ag research center, which literally was, I think, two miles from our main office. So I became friends with the professors at Ohio State. I was approached by a student one evening at a seminar about teaching at Ohio State. And then I launched into being an adjunct professor for 10 years, where I had dozens and dozens of turf grass students among landscape architecture and environmental students, natural resource students. And so you know, I developed this relationship with a lot of superintendents within the state. I think it just became a natural connection. And so that's how I got started, was invited to participate OTF and said, you know, would you be willing to volunteer and serve on the board? And so I did that for a span, I think, six years and then transitioned to the executive committee. Right. Well, it's a big organization, right? I mean, OTF has got to be one of the biggest state organizations, single state. I mean, obviously, it encompasses all turf and there's big ones out there, but he obviously was a big organization. And now you're the president of the Golf Course Architects, and now you have a national voice. And I've read some articles about you being quoted. And so let's talk a little bit about developing your voice for representing and advocating for a turf foundation versus representing uh, and advocating for a profession, one that's not always well understood by people. Can you talk a little bit about how you've changed your voice to be the president of this association? Yes, and I'm learning, too. A couple of weeks ago, uh, I was asked to participate in an interview, and a gentleman was working for a trade organization and said, you know, they've got an environmental-focused wing, and so they're doing some work. And halfway through the interview, he said, you know, I also happen to write for CNN. And I said, oh, that's interesting. And he said, I think this would make an incredible topic for CNN. And it was about climate change. And he says, you know, would you mind talking about some of the challenges that you as an architect in the turf industry face in climate change? And so we started to talk about that and then also about the good things that we as a golf industry do. So it wasn't just about the challenges, but how we can have a positive influence. You know, the darndest thing is, is that a few weeks later, an article came out and I was mortified for one, but furious for another because it was nothing that we had really discussed. And it was all spun about how golf was bad for the environment and for climate change. And we were having a negative influence on climate change. And then, you know, sort of at the very end of the article is about how we might be able to make some impact improvement. And I'm thinking to myself, well, you know, I got sort of torpedoed here by this author. And of course, and then you get attacked on social media going, well, you know, what in the world is this guy doing? So <laughs> people then you know, started to jump to my defense and say, listen, there's no way that Jason would have ever agreed to do this if he would have known what was happening. Well, shame on me for assuming that it was that author's fault. Well, what happened is he submitted it to CNN, they gave it to certain editors, and they rewrote it without his knowledge and published it under his name. I'm like, oh my God, yes, it's a big industry and important for us, but compared to Worldwide Matters, this is a tiny issue. But it was on the front cover of CNN.com, and I'm thinking to myself, well, if it's easy enough to incorrectly state people's opinions and voices, could you imagine a greater piece to this? And so I've started to become a little bit more guarded and make sure that things that I'm saying are being accurately communicated, because I not only have a responsibility to myself and certainly my clients and family and colleagues, but 
just to the game of golf in general. So that's the learning part of it, right? They don't really teach you that part in college. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, so listen, that experience, and thank you for sharing that, because, you know, I use that article all the time. And the headline I define as anybody in the golf business, this is clickbait. I think they said doomed with climate change, and it showed a picture of a drought stress golf course where they were just doing the greens and T-tops. But here's the thing, Jason, and this is what I worry about for us a little bit. What is fair criticism? I'm thinking about this. I see the CNN article, and then I see the Golf Digest article that highlights our pal Jim Pavanetti at Fairview and a lot of the great things that a lot of superintendents do about environmental stewardship, tending to the property in a way that enhances uh, environmental value. But what is a fair criticism of us, right? I mean, we're very sensitive and no one wants to be in the crosshairs and in the situation you're in, but that notwithstanding, what is fair criticism of us? Where can we be better? See, to me, as the president of an association, that's the kind of stuff that's got to be knocking around in your mind rather than having to fix this mess over here. What is fair criticism of us? No question. There, I just rely on my training, understanding, and I spend a lot of time and thought. I force myself to do that as I'm listening to people at different seminars or conferences and things. So I'll give you some examples of fair criticism. When golf or any development gets taken into environments that it really shouldn't be in, right? I mean, there's some fair criticism that should golf be in the desert, for example? That goes beyond just golf. You know, what ends up happening is that you say, okay, well, should we continue to build urban sprawling, for example, in the Phoenix area? Should we continue to build and build and build and build with really no end in sight? Or if we're going to do this, is there a better way to do it? Now, I think what gets lost in that fact is that non-golfers, even some golfers, they jump to the conclusion that we're using potable water or well water to irrigate these golf courses when, when in effect, we're actually using effluent water that's coming from all these urban and suburban households and businesses. So there's a fine balance that goes there. And, yes, working in those environments, if their golf course is going to be there, you can do a far, far better job of limiting your footprint and creating environmental habitat for birds, all sorts of animals, critters, everything else. But again, every once in a while, you got to take a big step back and go, well, if we're going to build a golf course in a certain place, does it really belong there? And I do think that there is some fair criticism for that. One of the reasons that I reached out and started volunteering with GEO, Golf Environment Organization, I like the approach that they took compared to some of the other environmental groups working within our industry because they're third-party certified, and that third party has zero to do with golf. And so they look at all of the principles and the BMPs and things that we write as golf managers and designers and contractors, and they take that with a much more critical eye, again, because they're focused on the environment, not focused on maintaining golf. And I know that you've worked with Geo and you were working with Gil down on the Olympic course, and I volunteer my time for Geo to help them out in guiding their principles as a member of our organization. So the other thing that I wonder, I think it is something you'd say if there was another criticism, maybe we could make golf more affordable. And I'm wondering when that is rolling around in your head as an architect, how does that translate into what you design and do? If we want to make golf affordable, 
What's design's role in that? As an architect, it's really helping clients, quite honestly, because they're the ones that are bankrolling a lot of this to understand what they can do to help. A lot of that goes into site selection so that you can build it and maintain it for a much more reasonable sum of money. You know, unfortunately, what happens is it doesn't always translate into affordable golf because you can still have a spectacular site, not move much earth. Maybe it's not as expensive to maintain, but because it's such a pretty place, they feel like they can charge anything they want. But I will also tell you that there's a handful of projects that we work with right now that are community-based, one of which is, for example, in the west side of Cleveland. It's a community-based. It is actually considered rated. You know, it's not any secret. It's rated the worst public golf facility in all of northern Ohio. Somebody says, my God, in your position, why on God's green earth would you volunteer to take a project like that? And I said, because I know the community, I live in that community, and I have family that's in that community, and I know how important that golf facility is to that community. And if I can do anything to get it to where that can get remodeled and maintained and bettered for the people that are there, so much the better. Frank, I'll tell you, I, I am a product of affordable golf. I grew up near Youngstown, Ohio. As a kid, huge shout out to the McMullen family who owned Yankee Run. <laughs> Granted, I understand that this was 30-some years ago, but even at that time, think about this now. My parents were able to buy me a junior golf pass. It was $150. I was allowed to play golf any day of the week other than when leagues were playing, and on weekends it was 2 o'clock and after. Think about that for a moment. And it is, not was, but it is a quality public golf course. And the reason they did that was just to make it affordable and get people involved. And I couldn't agree more with everything you said. And this is where, again, I think we face some interesting dilemmas. One is golf courses take a lot of land. And a lot of times to make them affordable, they could be a little bit smaller. Maybe not being tied to 18 holes is one way to go. Maybe making holes shorter and giving people more success might be a way to go. That's tricky because we've grown accustomed and it's, boy, if any sport is tradition oriented, golf is one of them founded in hundreds of years of tradition of these things. How much of what we've got to do is just smaller footprint? Uh, I think the people call it alternative golf, fun golf, entertainment golf, and there's a reason why things like top golf are so intriguing. You know, my son loves to play golf and he'll go overseas with me. My daughter could care less other than we would go to top golf and she loved it. And I'm like, well, why do you like this? And she said, well, if all golf was like this, she said, then I would play it every day. And so it just becomes a different entertainment value. And that partly is the younger generation. But yes, I mean, there is a lot more open-mindedness. You know, my colleagues and I are incredibly creative people and we'll design things if our clients and if the public at large who's consuming this product will allow us to do it. And that could mean 12-hole golf courses, reversible nine-hole golf courses. You know, I mean, I can just start rattling off a list of all things that are, quote, non-traditional golf. All of that, though, if you really dive into it, has some historic reference. St. Andrews, reversible golf course. Not all golf courses in, in Great Britain and Ireland were even 18 holes. I mean, some of them are 12 holes. Some of them are 21 holes. And, you know, Not all par 71, 72, or 73 either. Some of them were par 67s. And we push and push and push clients to try and let us break some of those molds. And it's difficult. It really is difficult. But you just have to keep at it. And the more success stories that we end up building and that get published and get put out there, the easier it is going to be to break those molds and get onto smaller footprints. Now, 
turning the tide, going into playing equipment, that's a whole other issue. That's something that we've been battling for literally hundreds of years. So where do you come down on this? Because I spent a lot of time with a really good golfer. My colleague and partner, Carl Scamenti here at Cornell, just won the New York State Mid-Amateur. And he's really good at golf. And he talks to me all the time about the dilemma. Do you change the ball? Do you change the course? How do you do it? And so where do you come down on this? And is it realistic to think that there's going to be a change in the ball? You know, it would be my desire for that to happen, especially for that top level golfer. You know, for one, all these golfers are training much more different than they had in the past. So part of it is a training regimen and how they approach it as a true sport. And then also part of it is equipment. But then every time, you know, that somebody says, well, it's just all equipment, this is such a new issue, I would bring up certain things. I have a Donald Ross letter back from the early 1920s where he was espousing how the golf ball just goes so doggone far and there needs to be a rollback in the equipment. Again, Donald Ross was having this same argument. I have a cartoon, I believe it was a golf cartoon from 1912. And there are these two guys on single rider golf carts, which is interesting in itself. And the guy had a telescope on the front of it. And he said, uh, you know, how did you hit yours, old chap? And the other guy said, I cut it a little bit, but I think I made it to the green. And there had a little sign there and it said par three distance, one mile, 300 and some odd yards. And I would show this to my students at the bottom of the caption. It said, this goes to the state, you know, of how the golf courses are being maintained and the improvement in playing equipment. And then, you know, I wouldn't show them the date right away and they would look at it and then I would show them the date and I go 1912. (laughs) (laughs) So again, this has just been a train that's been moving and has never been checked. Do you think ultimately, I'll get you out here on this. Do you think ultimately limitations in resources are going to drive us to build more cradles and more sandboxes and the golfing experience if it's going to expand, might not expand in its current format. It might expand with a different footprint. What are your thoughts about that as I get you out of here? I do. And I think that what's going to happen is that you're just going to have certain courses that are get labeled championship that can host not only just professional tournaments, but even high-level collegiate tournaments. And I'm with Jack Nicholas. I'm with Mr. Nicholas and many other people that be nice to be able to dial back that ball. But there's not a main consensus, even within our industry, Frank. That's the one thing which is difficult for a lot of people to hear. I advocate for it. You know, Mr. Nicholas advocates for it because my point to folks is that, okay, if we can dial back the equipment or the ball to 80%, we can take those high-level golfers and pull them back to where a 7,000-yard golf course means something. Mm -hmm. Right now, that means nothing. But what about the rest of us? And I go, well, I can play a golf course at 6,700 yards, but if that's too long for me, no big deal. I step forward at 64, 6,200 yards. Everybody can step forward a set of tees, but we just don't have the ability to keep developing and keep going backwards and backwards and backwards. But then you also get people that advocate and say, you know what? The distance for the game is great. We want to see this. Start with John Daly. You know, then it was Tiger, and now it's Colin and DJ, and they want to be able to see that entertainment value. And so, again, it's a difficult issue because there's not a lot of consensus. I'm trying. I'm one voice, maybe a big voice, but I'm, you know, I'm only one voice. Jason, thanks so much for taking the time. Appreciate you doing this. And it's just so great to wander through this with you. Best of luck in finishing your presidency. Hopefully it goes a little bit smoother than it did with the CNN article. Really appreciate <laughs> you taking the time, Jason. Thanks a lot. My pleasure, Frank. Thanks so much. 
Big thanks to my guest today, Jason Straka. Frankly Speaking is brought to you by our friends at Dryject, the only machine that aerates top dresses and amends in one pass. The Plant Food Company providing nutrient management solutions to golf course superintendents to enhance playability for 40 years. And Intelligro, makers of Civitas, a fungicide that's so much more. You can listen to us on Blog Talk Radio, Apple Podcasts, and Stitcher. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, leave us a review. Frankly Speaking is produced at Rep Studios in downtown Ithaca by Nate Richardson. Big thanks to marketing and business management John Kiger, graphic design Nicole Rossi, theme music Tucker Rossi, and executive producer Peter McCormick. I'm Frank Rossi. Thank you for joining us.